Well, hello to all of you who have elected to carve out some time today to join us here for this very special event dealing with the First Amendment. Uh, my name is Patrick Eddington. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I want to go over just a few housekeeping ground rules here before we get rolling into the main. Uh, you can submit your questions via the webpage, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, please use the hashtag Cato1A, as in First Amendment, Cato1A. Uh, there are additional resources on the webpage that are associated with this particular webcast. Um, I want to just, uh, you know, take a couple of minutes here to uh, do a little scene setting. Uh, an awful lot, of course, has happened uh, in the space uh, surrounding the First Amendment and kind of free speech issues generally. And I'm really delighted uh, that we have with us today the author of what is, uh, in my view, an absolutely outstanding book, uh, Jeff Kossif. Uh, Associate Professor of Cybersecurity Law at the Naval Academy uh, in their Cyber Science Department. Uh, some of you may know him as the author of The 26 Words That Created the Internet, uh, which is about Section 230, and it wouldn't surprise me if we wound up getting into that a little bit today. But today's book uh, is The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech, and it's got a particularly interesting series of angles to it. Uh, and we're going to get into that uh, in a lot of detail. We are also joined, I'm very pleased to, to say, uh, by Laura Gell, partner at Wilkie, Farrar & Gallagher, and the co-chair of the firm Cybersecurity and Privacy Practice Group. Uh, Laura is a pioneer in the development of case law affecting the internet, and she is the past uh, chief counsel uh, at America Online. Uh, we're also joined by Emma Lonzo, the director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. And I believe she's still a member of Spotify Safety Advisory Council. She'll correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, and also my colleague, Tommy Berry, uh, Cato Research Fellow in the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And he is the editor of Cato Supreme Court Review. So my thanks to all of you for joining us today. Uh, Jeff, I, I think it's Incumbent upon me to start with the obvious question, you know, why this book on this topic at this particular time? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. And I have to give the uh, quick disclaimer that everything I say is only on my behalf and not the DOD, the Navy, or the Naval Academy. Um, so, with that said, the reason I got interested in this book a few years ago it was really right after my Section 230 book uh, was published in 2019 that one of the big defenses that I heard over and over when I was writing about Section 234 230 was that uh, all Section 230 does is it says that you can't sue the platform, but you can always sue the poster. But I knew just from my experience, uh, both practicing law and researching the book, that that wasn't always true, that there's a wide variety of reasons that people that you can't necessarily sue the poster. Uh, they might be using technology that's sufficient to anonymize them. They might take operational safeguards like uh, using their neighbor's unsecured Wi-Fi, uh, or even if they could be identified by their IP address. Uh, the, what I found particularly interesting was this line of cases going back more than two decades now where courts have uh, said that there's a strong First Amendment right, not absolute, but a strong right in uh, being able to separate someone's name and identifying information from the communications that they're providing. And so that just seemed weird enough to me because I kind of like writing about really weird things like Section 230. And 
so I thought, well, how did that come to be? And so I started researching and going back and into cases from the 1950s involving the NAACP and seeing that they relied on the Federalist Papers and common sense. So that made me think that the, this seems uh, interesting enough and important for today's debates that it was worth writing a book about. I just I just want to quickly go around and, and kind of round robin this in terms of impressions uh, from our other panelists about what struck them about uh, some of the arguments that Jeff has made? Emma, let me turn to you first. When, when you were going over Jeff's book and looking at some of these historical examples and, and a number of the, of the cases that he cited, what, what impression, you know, essentially did you come away with and how does it kind of track with your experience uh, working these issues over at CDT? Yeah, no, thank you so much, Patrick. And thanks to Cato for hosting this and Jeff to another for another excellent book. Um, this is it's been uh, really great to be reading through um, the United States of Anonymous. And I think part of what I really appreciate what you did in this book, as well as in the 26 words book is you don't shy away from the difficulties that the the right to anonymous speech um, presents. So I really appreciated how in the book you talk through a great number of cases of people using anonymity tools, the same kind of tools that um, at free speech advocates like myself are, are constantly kind of promoting as really enabling so much positive and beneficial communication. You also talk about the dark side of them. You talk about how people abuse those kinds of tools and, um, and the sorts of of really nefarious and, and horrible things that people can get up to using this sort of shield. But what I also appreciate about the book, or at least my read of it, is that you still you know, come away really understanding how deeply rooted and for how so many different reasons this ability to communicate anonymously is absolutely essential to people's freedom of speech, freedom of opinion, freedom of association. Um, so I thought it's the book as a whole really, really grapples with the issue. It doesn't just sort of come from a perspective of, of course, anonymity is important, end of story. Um, but you really sort of air out all of the different kinds of arguments, um, which I think makes it just that much more persuasive. I think that's a great summary. And I, I want to turn to Laura now because, uh, you know, she has had experience, uh, continues to have extensive experience working in the corporate sector. And that was one of the things that really intrigued me about this book. You know, most of us here at Cato, certainly in what I do, I think about the First Amendment largely in the context of the government trying to tell me what I can or cannot say. Uh, but this book raises a whole series of very interesting questions uh, about the issue of speech anonymity uh, and, and the corporate sector and the private sector. So, Laura, maybe you can kind of share your thoughts about where Jeff has gone there and, and anywhere else that's kind of on your mind as you kind of think about the totality of the arguments that he's made. Thanks. And I hope my audio is working OK. I was, I was having trouble earlier. Um, yeah. Is it clearer? Yeah. Thanks, yeah for, thanks for having me and thanks for the question. I think Jeff did a fantastic job. Um, capturing some of the issues that we grappled with, a lot of the issues that we grappled with starting in the mid late 1990s um, uh, when I was at AOL, all these things were kind of coming up as first impression issues. We, you know, they, they would show up, we'd never seen them before and the, as the internet developed and we had to sort of guess what the right answer was. <laughs> and my own background and interest in law school and in private practice before I went to AOL was, um, pretty much focused in constitutional law and certainly on the First Amendment side. And that, at least in the judgments that I, as a human being, just one human being was making about what do we do when these subpoenas would come in the door, that was what I went back to. And so I think, and that was what the company, um, what AOL was, was focused on, was trying to do the right thing. Um, and that the 
the groundwork we had, the, the sort of guardrails we had were based in First Amendment law sort of as the best analogy, um, you know, at the time, although certainly we understood that it was not a pure First Amendment analysis. That's great. Tommy, uh, does the book pass muster from an originalist standpoint? <laughs> oh, I think it does. I mean, these are very difficult um, originalist questions. I mean, a lot of what uh, originalists themselves debate is how do you extrapolate to from uh you know precedents and, and history in the 1700s to uh, modern questions that no one could have possibly contemplated at that time social media um privacy you know encryption and and these types of technological issues um so i certainly think it, it uh, the book does a good job of laying out the debates and as we see justice scalia and justice thomas were usually on the opposite sides of a lot of these right to anonymous uh speech cases with justice scalia finding no uh right to anonymous speech embedded in in the first amendment's uh, right to freedom of speech and and justice thomas finding that it is there or at least that um applied fully to how, how to make the freedom of speech actualized um it has to include um some right to an, uh, anonymous speech at, at least where um you know it doesn't come into conflict with with other rights uh, and so i think it, it shows that 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 debate and it's really timely to a lot of the the current debates among uh free speech and even among sort of originalists or conservatives and libertarians now which is uh the thinking about not just government but also social media companies internet companies and states in some cases trying to now regulate social media companies and saying there's a right and a wrong way um, to moderate speech online uh, i think it's very timely to these questions about one these debates about how should social media companies both moderate their speech and decide on an anonymity policies are very important to discourse um, but two it's a separate question should government be deciding one rule to to fit all of them or should this be a debate that's being had among social media companies um, and i think the book uh, does a good job of showing how different both social media and other online platforms have reached different conclusions about that um, and maybe it's better to let that debate play out among those those companies rather than have the government try to impose uh, one view of the correct balance. I, I think everybody has kind of touched on this whole uh, quasi elephant in the room of social media. And, and we have a question from Lewis Bishop. I think this came in uh, from our from our website, actually. And uh, his question is as follows. Is our is our social divisiveness misunderstood? Is the cause essentially digital communication with its capacity for anonymity, or has the educational establishment abandoned wise inculcation of the young? Don't others have a responsibility to say what they believe while I'm to listen respectfully? I guess I'd make the observation that, at least when I'm on Twitter, I don't see a lot of respectful listening as a, as a general rule, which is probably why I don't spend as much time on Twitter as I did a few years ago. Anybody want to weigh in on that, uh, on that overarching question? Well, I'm, I'm happy to chime in on the um, kind of the angle about, you know, is it the lack of identification of ourselves in our communications online that leads to to divisiveness um, or to, to kind of bad outcomes in speech? I would just have to say that 
in looking at how, you know, as, as Thomas mentioned, a lot of different sites take different approaches to how they handle um, the idea of ident users having to identify themselves. Many sites do allow anonymous or especially pseudonymous speech where people are, you know, creating a screen name that they use persistently across communication on that site, um, but isn't necessarily the name that's on their driver's license. Um, but Facebook famously has long insisted on what is sometimes called their real name policy, or I think their official term is their authentic identity policy. Um, it was very much, as, as Jeff covers in the book, you know, very much tied up in Mark Zuckerberg's conception in 20, 2009, 2010, that you know, people will just be one identity everywhere. And that was sort of the future that he was forecasting or driving towards. Um, and I think it's safe to say that on Facebook, where most people are operating under some version of their legal name, you don't see dramatically different or better or more thoughtful or more respectful communication than you see on other social media services. And in, in my research and our research at CDT, um, you know, it really looks like there are many other factors that go into how you construct an online platform, what kinds of content policies you have, how you explain those to users, what tools you give users to moderate each other and to control their own experiences on a site that really end up shaping and affecting how communication happens on that site. And that the idea that requiring everyone to use their, their real names or their legal identities is not a magic panacea um, to kind of improve or, or lift up the level of communication on a service. You know, being a, a historian, I have, go ahead, Laura, please. I was gonna say, I wonder about cause and effect. Um, I think that it was probably truer um, when, when people started maybe 25, 30 years ago communicating on the internet, that they were likely to be more divisive or uh, abusive or say things they wouldn't ordinarily say in an anonymous context. I think the social discourse generally has uh, you know, evolved away from, from respectful listening and respectful, respectful discourse. And I guess the question is, is, is the, the wide availability of at least pseudonymous speech, has it sort of degraded everybody's, you know, sort of numbed us all to the, to the way, to, to any kind of outrage about what we're seeing? I mean, if it's, if it's, I feel like people talk now personally under their own names and their own identities in ways that they didn't, you know, 30 whatever years ago. And I wonder how much of that has to do with their, the standard degrading because of, of talking so often without consequences. Kind of a general coarsening of, uh, uh, of societal dialogue generally. I think there's probably, I think there are probably a lot of people who would, who would agree with that. I know I certainly do. Um, we have a question from uh, Daniel Vitos on Facebook. Uh, can communism and Russian imperialism be strong enough to allow for freedom of speech? Well, I think those questions have probably been answered by history for the most part. Uh, and I think a guy by the name of Alexei Navalny uh, would, would probably be in a position to speak to the current Russian experience, that's for sure. But, it, you know, when we do talk about uh, essentially the historical experience and, and kind of antecedents, those are the things that just intrigue me to no end. And I have to say, Jeff, I had never heard of Junius. Uh, can we spend a couple of minutes on Junius to kind of help us understand it really kind of the background, I think one of the big background pieces, essentially, in the very start of your book uh, that acts as, a, I think, a very persuasive hook as to why anonymity is so important. Yeah, so I, I think of Junius as sort of the original troll. Uh, so he or she, there, there was some writing indicating that Junius was a he. Um, 
was wrote letters to the editor of the uh, public advertiser newspaper in London in the uh, in the 1700s, uh, very critical of uh, King George III and very uh, supportive of the colonies. And he had a very sharp pen, uh, much sharper than anything you'd see on Twitter today. Um, and unfortunately for him, def uh, the criminal defamation law was quite different <laughs> back then uh, in both England and, and the United States. Uh, but so he took great care to be anonymous, signed every letter Junius. Uh, there were all of these really intricate operational safeguards, like leaving, uh, having three different drop off points for the letters before they got to the editor, editor of the paper. Uh, having there's at least some evidence based on analysis that Junius actually had someone else or different people copy his handwriting of the letter before sending it off to the newspaper so people couldn't tra trace back handwriting samples. And uh, but but he uh, and he had a big impact. He uh, he criticized the prime minister to the point where that led to his resignation or it was one of one of the leading causes of it. And uh, but then he wrote a very direct letter to the king, which although Junius couldn't be identified, the publisher Woodfall uh, was tried for seditious libel, and uh, there was not a verdict for the, uh, the government. And then there was a mistrial, so there there was no actual conviction. But it just sort of shows the jeopardy that Junius was in at the time, and to this day. There's no definitive consensus as to who Junius is. There's one candidate uh, who, who people, many historians believe was Junius, but there's others who believe other people were. Uh, so we, we really do not know. So Juni even then Junius was able to conceal his identity to this day. That is some absolutely outstanding intelligence tradecraft, I will have to say. I think that I think Junius could have taught my former colleagues at the Central Intelligence Agency a few things, quite frankly. Um, you know, I want to stay in that particular era for a minute because it is directly relevant um, uh, to the American experience. And I, uh, I love the fact that you spent a fair amount of time talking about essentially Publius and, and the Federalist Papers and essentially this, this conspiracy for all intents and purposes to create an entirely different form of government. Uh, by three guys who are basically writing uh, anonymously. You know, tell us how much of an impact ultimately does that have in helping to kind of shape the nature uh, and the practice of anonymity in America from that, po uh, that point forward? Well, so I, in America, the sort of the traditions of Junius really carried over. Junius, there, there were other examples in England, and that really carried over to Thomas Paine uh, publishing Common Sense under a pseudonym or anonymous, fully anonymously, um, and he included some explanation and about why he did that, basically to focus on the argument. And I mean, even within months, he he was uh, his name was associated with it, but at the time of publication, it was not. Uh, for and his motivations were different from Junius because at the time. Uh, it was highly unlikely that Thomas Paine would have been prosecuted, but uh, th there was much more of a speech focus to his reasons for anonymity. And the same for the Federalist Papers, uh, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, they 
Uh, I mean, this was uh, after independence, this was to uh, support the ratification of the Constitution. And the best that they, they did not leave a great deal of documentation as to the reasons why they wrote under Publius rather their names, but the best guess based on what they had written is that they again wanted to separate their identities and whatever baggage that might be associated with those identities from the arguments that they that they were making and they they told a very small group of associates at the time that they were behind it some people speculated especially as to hamilton but um they i mean they took great care even when they talked to different people about it uh they occasionally wrote in cipher so they again wanted to take some pretty great operational safeguards to protect their identities you know in in this whole um debate essentially about anonymity and kind of looking back uh, at the founding and i just want to open this particular one up to the entire group I wonder, do you think the founders, do you think that particular generation uh, would find the often scurrilous use of online anonymity to be antithetical to the protection of liberty? Uh, or do you think they would, they would view it as you know, one of the costs, essentially, of advancing liberty? What, what, are, what are folks thinking on that question? Reaching back in a historical sense. Tommy, what do you think? Well, I can, uh, I mean, some of the examples that Jeff has, has in the book are not exactly, uh, the, all the anonymous speech uh, examples were not exactly all the most polite and uh, grandiloquent and, uh, you know, genteel. Uh, there was a lot, I don't know if scurrilous would be going too far, but there was certainly a lot of examples in, in the early days of speech that was basically political mudslinging. Um, maybe, maybe not as many uh, swear words as we see on, on Twitter these days. But then again, different, different words were considered scandalous back then. Um, so if, if we're basing sort of the right to anonymous speech on what types of examples did we have back in the day of anonymous speech that was protected, that was never found, <clears throat> I think it's a pretty, I think the framers had to be aware that there was a pretty broad range of, of speech, both high and low. Um, that 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 people were were making anonymously, and and that obviously one of the main. I, I love how Jeff sort of goes through six different. I think it's six different motivations people have, um, and uh, many of them just center on the fact that an anonymity allows you to be harsher, to be more critical of people who could who could punish you in some way if they knew who you were. I, I want to work in some additional uh, audience questions here because I think. Uh, some of these, I, th I think, really kind of get to the heart of what we want to try to deal with today. Eric Blitz uh, asked the following. Can you reflect on the balance between protecting anonymous speech and the necessity of the judicial process to obtain evidence with identity as an inevitable necessity and the substantial power of an investigator or prosecutor to serve otherwise strong policy ends? Is, an is anonymity rendered illusory? I'll just open that up for anybody in the group who wants to try to take that one on. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy to to uh, give thoughts on it, and it really begins before the internet, uh, because really the first discovery, the the first really battle for civil discovery uh, and anonymity came up in the NAACP 
versus Alabama case, and that was in the 1950s, really right post Brown versus Board of Education, and in, in that case, the the NAACP was working very hard to get Alabama officials to desegregate per Brown versus Board of Education. Alabama officials, to put it mildly, did not want to desegregate, and the they but they also wanted to get the NAACP out of the state. They found basically that the NAACP wasn't complying with the corporation registration requirement because the NAACP thought since they're based in New York, they didn't have to, but apparently they did. This was something that could have easily been cured by just having them file the form and pay a small fee, but that really wasn't the point. Uh, the, the governor, the attorney general wanted to drive the NAACP out of the state, so they sued to basically freeze all of its operations in Alabama. And uh, as part of that lawsuit, they, because it was a lawsuit, they issued a discovery request for the names of all of the members of the NAACP in Alabama, which is totally unnecessary to resolve a dispute about whether they filed a corporation's paper. Uh, and the NAACP kept saying, you know, we'll just file it. We don't, we don't want to give this information up, but they were actually uh, in a courtroom of a state trial court judge named Walter Jones, who was an avowed white supremacist. He also would later preside over the New York Times or Sullivan trial. Um, and so he had very little sympathy to the NAACP's arguments and fined them thousands of dollars a day for not complying with the discovery order. The Alabama Supreme Court said, we don't even want to touch this case. Uh, so we're not going to we're not going to disturb the judgment and it goes up to the US Supreme Court and the US Supreme Court uh, said finds a right to associate anonymously and uh, so I think that really shows the tension between a discovery dispute and the need for discovery and the interests in anonymity and uh, at that time the court was differently composed and the language was perhaps not terribly specific about how broad this right was. Uh, over time, it was applied to speech as well, and it would narrow where basically they created an exacting scrutiny test, which I guess the Supreme Court could just do, um, which basically provides a strong but not absolute right, and there can be interests that outweigh uh, the need for anonymity. But that's basically what set the framework for the internet-related discovery cases and that's what courts tried to look to as they assessed how do we uh, assess how do we decide whether to order the disclosure of someone's IP address or the name of a subscriber associated with an IP address. And have there been uh, in, in the case of the NAACP uh, and particularly in that period were they the only group that the state of Alabama had subjected this kind of requirement to? Prior, prior to this case going forward? Um, I'm not aware of any other, I mean, I'm sure that there were corporation filing issues, but uh, in terms of filing a lawsuit and then issuing a discovery request for anyone who's given money to the organization, I'm not aware of any, uh, this was pretty specifically targeted at the NAACP. Yeah, cer certainly seems that way in that, in that respect. Uh, we've got someone uh, who's anonymous here, who, which ironically, um, asking whether or not anonymity is treated in the same way 
uh, from a legal standpoint versus uh, the use of, of a pseudonym. Um, it, it seems to me that that's, there's a distinction maybe with a difference there. Is that something that we can have our attorneys here explore with us for a moment? Uh, I, I mean, in the both online and offline, the, and it was really in the McIntyre versus Ohio case in 1995, where the court started, even though that was just about a, that, that was about a flyer that did not have a person's name on it when the state collection law said it had to, um, the court drew some comparisons and provide, found a similar right to being fully anonymous versus using a pen name that does not disclose all of your identifying information. And the same thing carried over to, to the internet when courts are assessing subpoenas. Now, uh, it might be if someone does use a pseudonym, and this is one thing I point out in the book, is that if you use a pseudonym that's consistent over time, there are advantages to that because you could sort of build up your own identity, an identity that can be associated with the various writings. But the problem with that, and this is kind of like the mosaic theory in the Fourth Amendment realm, is that you could start piecing together all of these little bits of information that while individually might not provide very much uh, light as to who you are, but when you put it all together, it, some people might be able to piece the puzzle together and figure out who you are. So that's really, it's more of, it's not as much of a legal danger with pseudonymity as it is really operational. Laura, with respect to um, the, the kind of clients that you work with, what are the, are the big issues uh, that, that kind of come up in the cases that, that you've had to deal with, to the extent that you're in a position to comment um, surrounding essentially uh, anonymity or the use of pseudonyms and all the rest of that? What are the main things oftentimes that your clients bring to you that, that wind up kind of putting you in a position of having to actually go into court and deal with this kind of stuff? Um, these days, I would say it's primarily harassment and cyberstalking. Um, types of issues um, more and, and of individuals, um, certainly more than corporations. On the corporate side, I think that the by and large, and I guess Jeff can talk about you know some current cases that are going the other way, but by and large, you're seeing less of the, you know, trying to unmask people critical of the CEO kinds of cases than we saw early on. I think that's turned out not to be a terribly fruitful or, or you know, great kind of PR Aspect, angle. We used to see a lot of corporations trying to find people who are criticizing them. These days, it really is more about actual threats um, or other kinds of cyber stalking and, and sort of people who are in, in fear are of folks accessing their devices or identifying them in some other ways. MSCDT, uh, like a lot of other organizations that kind of operate in the digital space, is very concerned as a general rule about trying to protect people that are engaged in activism, uh, political activism, and whether we're talking about here domestically uh, or internationally. Um, give us a sense about the kinds of, of issues that you see essentially surrounding efforts to effectively unmask folks uh, in that context. You know, what are the stakes there uh, and, and particularly in a domestic context now, because we've had obviously this massive ruling in Dobbs uh, and an awful lot of folks are uh, extremely concerned about the ramifications of that from a privacy and a, and a 
potentially a civil liberty standpoint. So take a dive into that if, 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 if you dare, so to speak. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, there's a lot to potentially talk about here. One thing I wanted, especially to your question about sort of um, what's going on internationally and where do we see a lot of these fights around privacy and security uh, playing out, there is a major push worldwide by um, governments, including many democratic governments, to try to undermine people's ability to use encryption technologies. Um, so as folks might be aware, uh, encryption technologies help ensure that people's communications, their messages, their emails, um, their chats, uh, what have you, are um, are protected when they transmit from one person to another. And if your communication is fully end-to-end -end encrypted, that means that no one other than the sender and recipient of that message, including the service provider, can see what is inside that message. That is an incredibly strong form of privacy protection. Um, and it, when people are able to communicate in an encrypted fashion, it really can shield their identity um, and the contents of their messages from uh, law enforcement, but also from the service providers who might be one of those sort of weak links in an investigation or in a data breach to sort of exposing who people are and what they're saying. Um, but we see a lot of governments looking at the challenge that this poses for law enforcement, for investigation of everything from child exploitation crimes to terrorism to much lower level things, um, really pushing and, and continuing a fight that's been happening in the internet space for 20 or 30 years at this point uh, around should people have access to strong encryption for their own privacy and security or must providers of these tools build in back doors um, or otherwise kind of undermine that privacy and security so that law enforcement can have access. CDT is, is very clearly on the side of the former. We think it is too much of people's lives happen online, everything from financial transactions to access to information, sensitive communications. We all need to be able to rely on encryption technologies to protect our privacy and the security of our communications. Um, and that as as much as we understand the need for law enforcement to obtain access to information for their investigations, really pushing to encourage other kind, other ways of investigating uh, cases that don't require obtaining kind of full access to what people are saying. Um, domestically, I would say, I think we are entering a really challenging time in the United States for a number of reasons, um, but even specifically around this whole question of providing access to information, speaking, providing access to truthful information, say whether it's about um, access to information regarding abortion care or gender confirmation uh, medical treatments, um, where across the country, we are going to have very different legal regimes governing the same information and putting speakers potentially at risk um, of you know, criminal violations for sharing information about things that are have become illegal in some states, but are still lawful and protected activity in other states. Um, I think we're going to see many people really having to grapple with their ability to shield their identities while they're trying to provide truthful, accurate information, especially online, where the fact that you are posting from a state where access to abortion and information about abortion is lawful and, and protected may not matter if it's ending up in the hands of someone who is in a state that has criminalized that kind of um, access to information. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot of people kind of navigating these difficult questions around, can I speak? Can I make this information available um, while still preserving my privacy, while still ensuring that the 
privacy and security of the people receiving the information. Um, so I think we'll see a lot of focus on the use of encryption and privacy preserving technologies here in the U.S. as well. And I, I guess, you know, that entire discussion kind of brings me to uh, uh, what I think is a logical question, which is what, what does it look like um, to the extent that folks can comment on it on a state by state basis with respect uh, you know, to these issues uh, as it pertains to the protection of anonymity, uh, the use of, of uh, pseudonyms for um, online posting, or even more than that at this particular point in time. Do we see essentially the, the potential for some uh, additional litigation, possibly at the federal level, where we have states attempting to engage in something, a party in a state, uh, let's say, just to use the, the example of a uh, uh, of, a, of a pro-choice group essentially advocating, uh, putting out information about what's available, what's not available, what is allowed, what is not allowed in a given state. Could we potentially see circumstances whereby that winds up making its way to the federal level? And if so, what would be the kinds of scenarios? I'll start you know, back with you, Emma. What are the kinds of scenarios that you could potentially envision that, uh, that might be unfolding? And for that matter, uh, just in the wake of, of the Dobbs decision, are we seeing anything percolating in that sense right now uh, in specific states. And I'll, I'll just open, I'll start with Emma, but I want to open it up to everybody. Yeah, so I'll say quickly, I think we are in early days on this issue yet, but one of the main areas where I think we will see potentially a lot of litigation is around this concept of what does it mean to be aiding and abetting someone to obtain an abortion in a state where doing so is illegal. Um, and so there is a somewhat messy area of First Amendment doctrine around when is speech part of the commission of a crime and not protected by the First Amendment or, or receiving lower protection from the First Amendment? Um, and when is it, you know, speech and provision of information and what other people do with that is kind of wholly separated from the speaker. Um, there, I think we will like currently, especially as far as the online content and online information angle goes, Section 230 is actually a really relevant law to understand because Section 230 preempts state criminal or civil laws that would treat an online intermediary as a publisher of third party content. So if someone from a freedom of choice state was uh, posting information about how to obtain an abortion, um, you know, that person or the the intermediary that uh, that is enabling another person in another state to access that information would be shielded by Section 230 from application of um, the state criminal law. What we might expect to see, though, is some states arguing that their laws around um, prohibiting aiding and abetting someone seeking and obtaining an abortion are not, it's not about publisher liability. So it's not about what Section 230 covers and instead it's regulating conduct um, or regulating you know, some other kind of activity by that provider that would fall under that criminal, um, criminal statute. So again, this is a very, I think, open area of law, but those are the kinds of questions I think we can expect to see some courts looking at. So your analysis very much um, echoes a lot, I think, of the concerns and debates that have taken place with respect to the Patriot Act's material support provision, right? Um, as I listened to you, that was really what was kind of foremost in my mind as I thought about it. Jeff, what do you think about Emma's 230 analysis here and its applicability? Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this. And I mean, one thing that is has come up in, in a a lot of the debates over the past few years about Section 230 
there have been dozens of proposals and I meet with pretty much anyone who wants to talk with me about uh, changes to 230. And one thing that comes up fairly frequently is that there is an exception for federal criminal law enforcement, but not for state criminal law enforcement, except for uh, what was passed in 2018, which is FOSTA, which uh, creates an exception for certain state uh, laws related to facilitating uh, prostitution and sex trafficking. But other than that, state criminal law is still covered by 230. And there are a number of people who say, you know, why don't the federal government uh, isn't being aggressive enough? Why don't we just open it up to the states and exempt all state criminal law? And it, it's a tempting proposal, but the pushback, which I think is more tempting, is that there's a whole lot of stuff that the states could start doing um, on the criminal side. And it becomes very, very dangerous if you start basically exposing a platform that serves the world and the United States to the specific requirements of one that are passed by one state legislature, um, even if there might be constitutional problems with them as well. I mean, the platforms have to operate sort of in the here and now, and they make their moderation decisions based on the reality. So I think there's really a good reason to keep the state criminal exception to 230. Um, and I, I think that what we're seeing over the past week is perhaps something that should be giving people uh, reason to reconsider the argument that we have to do something about Section 230 because we don't like the internet. Uh, I don't think, I, I, I think I'm, I'm open to 230 amendments. I've uh, proposed some in what I've written, but it can't just be sort of, we've got to get something done, so let's just tear it down. Uh, I, I think that's too dangerous right now. Uh, separately, and th this really gets to a lot of the sort of state internet-related regulations, um, there's something we haven't talked about yet is that two states, Texas and Florida, have actually passed laws that actually uh, try to limit the ability of platforms to moderate content. Um, District courts have um, granted preliminary injunctions uh, blocking both of those. And uh, in Florida, the 11th Circuit affirmed. In Texas, the Fifth Circuit appears to be uh, reversing. They tried to basically temporarily block it, but the Supreme Court stopped it. But that's a long way of saying that that's focused, been focused on the First Amendment, the court's analysis. And there's been some 230 analysis in some of the opinions. Um, one issue that was raised, but I would like to see a lot more of, is the Dormant Commerce Clause, uh, because I think that, and I know it's a fractious issue, but I think when you start to have 50 different states try to set these rules, I, I think that's what at least part of the rationale for the Dormant Commerce Clause is, to the extent that it still exists. Um, I'd love to make the Dormant Commerce Clause great again. I would love to, um, be, because I, I, I think that we're going to continue to see these states have these ideas, and I just don't think that it's going to be practical to be able to implement that nationwide. Laura, is Jeff describing a, poss a possible future of chaos? I think we're all describing a possible future of chaos this week. I mean, I think it's uh, it's kind of hard not to, a likely future of chaos, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah, I was thinking sort of about the, you know, this, and I'm not sure it's really 
legally applicable, but thinking about the sort of the chilling effect, right, of having the sort of race to who can have the most restrictive law. And then if you're a platform and you're trying to be careful with your content moderation, it's hard to you know, make sure you're really geofencing or something else. And so you end up, it ends up chilling speech that is permissible and, you know, in lots of other places and you have sort of a race to the bottom. I think that can't, that can't be the future. Um, or, well, I mean, it's, we've had lots of races to the bottom, but the race to the bottom in terms of limiting um, expression of ideas and, and um, services that are legal in some states and not in others seems like a very bad idea to me. If the history, yeah, well, I, I was just going to make the observation that usually in 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 the history of our country, when we have had major crises of one kind or another, that is usually when people in the executive branch and the legislative branch do things that every one of us regrets later. Um, and, and you know, my favorite examples, you know, of course, uh, stem from the First World War and the passage of the Espionage Act, the Trading with the Enemy Act the Food and Fuel Control Act and the Sedition Act. And, and only two of those actually got peeled back during the Harding administrations, the TWIA and the Espionage Act, of course, remain on the books to these days. Uh, and, and that's, I think, one of the concerns that I have. Um, Tommy, let's, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, that Texas uh, law, though, that, uh, that the Fifth Circuit was dealing with. I think you've been looking into that a little bit. Any particular thoughts on, on the merits or, or demerits there? I, I think I I think I know where Jeff and, and probably I am uh, in that respect with, with regard to that law, but I'd be interested in hearing your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in the same place. Uh, Cato and I, I and several of my colleagues uh, have filed amicus briefs opposing both the Florida law and the Texas law on First Amendment grounds. Um, the primarily compelled speech grounds, essentially these laws um, force platforms to host speech that they don't want to host. Um, and so there is lots of precedent that newspapers, for example, can't be forced to publish op-eds or opinion, uh, any articles that they don't want to publish. Um, you can't justify that on some you know, purported state justification for balancing. And I think what we've been discussing, the, the problem of uh, different states potentially passing laws that completely conflict, give platforms opposite rules to follow just shows how you can't have 50 states having 50 different rules you could have. So Texas and Florida have both ostensibly put in what they call sort of, they, they use different terms, but basically viewpoint neutral uh, rules. But, you know, a state court in Florida could come up with different precedent for what's viewpoint neutral than Texas is. And Facebook could find itself being forced to keep something up in one state and take something down in another state, which you can't do if you're one website that's accessible from all 50 states other than just block yourself entirely from a state. And then it's a further catch 22, because often if you interpreted them, even blocking yourself entirely from a state would be violating the law as interpreted by that state. Um, and so now these issues of conduct that's legal in one state and illegal in another is just going to add an additional wrinkle to that, um, both dormant commerce clause and also right to travel. Um, if you're if you're essentially stopping people from collaborating to go across state lines to do something uh, that's legal in another state, there is one good precedent in the Supreme Court uh, called Bigelow versus Virginia that struck down a Virginia law that attempted to ban an advertisement for uh, New York abortion services, where at the time abortion was legal in New York, even though it wasn't in Virginia. And the Supreme Court essentially said, no, you can't strike down, uh, you, you can't ban an advertisement for something that is legal in the state um, in which it is being advertised. 
Um, and I think that, that precedent could come into play, for example, if what if a state like Texas passes a new law saying social media can't advertise, can't allow any posts for things that are that are illegal? Well, how do you define that if it's legal in one state and not legal in another and you don't and people are accessing it from from anywhere and everywhere? And that Bigelow decision, is that the only one of its kind? I don't know for certain, but it's certainly the leading case. Um, and it's getting a lot more attention recently because there's a comment. There's a, some people call it dicta. Some think it's part of the holding that essentially says, of course, Virginia could not ban someone from traveling from Virginia to New York to get an abortion. And now that this is suddenly becoming relevant, now that some states may in fact try to do just that, people are going back and, and thinking like, is this an actual holding of the court? Um, or is this just an assumption that's now going to that now some people are going to test because it was primarily a First Amendment case, not a not a right to travel case. Um, and of course, this is also an area where Justice Thomas's originalism giveth, but also taketh away. Justice Thomas is a big defender of the First Amendment right to anonymous speech, but he also thinks that from an originalist point of view, the Dormant Commerce Clause uh, d does not exist. There is only there is only a, a federal commerce clause. Um, so this is another issue where some originalists may disagree with each other. Randy Barnett uh, just did an interview with Nick Gillespie uh, on the Reason podcast um, that actually touched on some of these very issues we're discussing today. And I would I would commend it to all of you. And I'd also commend it to all of you who are watching. And speaking of those who are watching, just a reminder, uh, our hashtag for today is Cato1A. You can submit your questions on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, or our website. I am, of course, going through these as they come in and trying to pick out ones that I think are going to uh, be really spot on for our panelists here. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about encryption. Emma spent a lot of time on that. And we've been talking about, in essence, how uh, encryption technology can uh, protect people that need to be protected uh, because they're trying to seek essentially a service. Uh, or something else that they need in order to deal with their health or, you know, deal with pretty much anything else. There is a dark side, however, to encryption and the anonymity that it can provide. Um, and this is the one that I wind up having to basically deal with pretty much all the time in the, in the context of the FBI. Uh, and that is the use of encryption technology in order to carry out criminal acts. Um, I noticed, Jeff, uh, in the book, you know, and, and you spoke just a moment ago about being open to um, amendments to Section 230, uh, at least at the, at the federal level, as they apply to, to the federal uh, proposition. And if I recall correctly, uh, in the book, uh, your focus was essentially on uh, sex trafficking uh, and things, you know, kind of surrounding that. Um, could you kind of give us a sense of how you arrived at that particular compromise on your otherwise relatively iconoclastic position on 230? Yeah, so it was something, so this was back in 2017, uh, when right as various versions of FOSTA and SESTA were, uh, were moving through the House and the Senate at a pretty rapid pace. Um, I, what I was primarily concerned about with these bills was the chilling effect that it would have and the unintended consequences on uh, vulnerable populations. Uh, but at the same time, there was just a case the year before that the First Circuit decided where involving Backpage, they were, Backpage was sued 
by um, three people who had been as teenagers trafficked on the site. And I mean, the First Circuit opinion basically read like testimony asking Congress to change Section 230. They said, you know, we've got to dismiss this case, but Congress can do something here. And I mean, they, it, it was it was real concerns uh, about this and how, how do you address it? So uh, what I had hoped for <laughs> is not what I got. Um, and, per, and, and I actually, frankly, regret even trying to find a compromise because I, I think that perhaps was just used as a way to get what we have now, which I think has been really disastrous. Um, I had hoped that there could be a narrow amendment um, focus, that uh, focused on sex trafficking uh, with the intentional facilitation. And uh, that's not what happened. <laughs> so section two, I, I actually think more of the problem was not just section 230 being amended, but the um, expansion of the two underlying criminal statutes. I think that actually did even more damage. And um, the, I, I was kind of in, involved in trying to push back against certain compromises that didn't really work out. Um, and what I saw was people were sort of stacking legislative language on top of each other. And it was, and what, what actually came out is something that is really difficult to decipher because you have different knowledge standards on, on top of each other. Uh, there's one form of liability that's created, but then there's not an exception to 230 explicitly stated in it. The courts are reading all sorts of things into it. And what all of this has done is created uncertainty for the platform. So right before this was even signed into law, for example, Craigslist got rid of its personal section because they said, you know, we can't, we, we can't take the risk here. And I mean, more problematically is that the, what was passed was not just about sex trafficking. It was also about prostitution. Uh, and what that ended up doing was making life much more dangerous for sex workers. Um, you, there's a number in a number of media stories, uh, you have police saying, for example, you know, we at least used to be able to watch out for their safety, but we can't do that anymore because we, we don't know where they are. And um, the, so, so I, I think that there were a lot of, I, I think the compromises uh, that were reached really ended up being quite dangerous and there's not really much evidence that it's addressed the issue of sex trafficking. So, I mean, that was, that was my first time involved in <laughs> a legislative debate and I learned a lot of lessons from that, frankly. Well, and if I could just chime in there, um, I was very involved as well in the, the SESTA-FOSTA debate and, and the kind of years before the bill was passed in, in I guess, 2018, um, where, where Congress was sort of grappling with these issues. And, you know, just as, as Jeff said, the political process often leaves us with like Frankenstein bills, frankly. Um, so with, you might hear us refer to FOSTA or SESTA or FOSTA-SESTA because there were actually two different ideas in the House and the Senate and the, the ultimate political compromise was to sort of combine both and pass both concepts into law. And so that's where, um, you know, in the, in the interest of achieving a bipartisan and bicameral consensus on what to do, the actual underlying substance got 
really murky and and really confused. Um, and it's something that courts are still grappling with today. There are actually at least four different cases before different circuits in the US all about this one question of what does the amendment to Section 230 of FOSTA actually mean as far as the knowledge standard that applies if a plaintiff wants to bring a civil suit um, against a, a website, whether it's Twitter or Craigslist or Reddit, um, about the uh, seeking damages for, um, for sex trafficking that has happened to them and that has happened with some connection to the website, what is it that the plaintiff has to establish the website knew? Um, what level of knowledge does the website actually have to have before it can be uh, liable for damages? And I remember from the negotiations around SESTA-FOSTA, there was a lot of discussion about this question and a, a real kind of argument from a lot of us that you need to, ha to have criminal or kind of civil liability flowing out of a potential criminal action, we need to be talking in this sphere of knowing conduct and intent to commit a crime. Um, and the language in the amendment to Section 230 talks about needing to meet the the federal criminal standard, um, which is a knowing kind of conduct standard so that the, the intermediary has to know that they are facilitating sex trafficking. Um, but what we're seeing plaintiffs argue is that no, because the, the civil recovery standard is lower, um, you can find lower mental uh, mens rea standards um, in other parts of the law that constructive knowledge, the idea that the website should know that because sex trafficking has happened on their site at some point, or they have seen this kind of content before, that there's liability that should attach for a particular plaintiff's case. It, it creates a potentially unending source of liability for websites. And, and as Jeff said, even just after the kind of passage through Congress of these bills, before they were even enacted into law, we saw multiple websites shutting down different sections of their service because this potential risk of liability was so great. We've seen in the years since many different services designed to help sex workers keep themselves safe, whether it's things called bad date lists, where people would share information about clients that they had had that were violent or abusive in some way, um, people sharing health and wellness information, all sorts of information that otherwise we would consider lawful and constitutionally protected speech, just getting shut down by intermediaries who can't and won't take on the, the increased risk. Um, so just wanted to kind of chime in with vehement agreement with Jeff on that, that the as much as when we think about amendments to the law, whether it's Section 230 or limits on access to encryption or some kind of conditional standard for your ability to be anonymous online, as much as it, we might be able to think of theoretical answers there, the political process of getting them through Congress puts a whole different gloss on things. And then the end result is a lot of work that you have to do in the courts to try to sort of reestablish what was what does this law actually mean and, and is it actually constitutional you know jeff i spent over 10 years on the hill and i was a lobbyist for 10 years before that so if you want somebody to take a look at a legislative draft that you have some concerns about i'm always happy to do it um you know one of the guys that i worked with uh on the house veterans affairs committee once made the observation to me that Pat, you know, up here on the Hill, we don't legislate with a, a chisel. We legislate with a sledgehammer. And more often than not, unfortunately, that is exactly what happens. Uh, and these these political pressures that, that both of you have basically talked about, I think just, you know, underscores what I said earlier about in moments of crisis, in moments of intense passion, almost invariably, no matter how, how much we necessarily want to be able to do something, as terrible as a particular action, you know, might have been or is, 
it really does make a huge difference in the long run if we are willing to take the time necessary to think these things through. And this is especially true uh, of, of legislators and folks who work on the Hill. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I definitely share the concerns that both of you have expressed about, you know, where this could end up. You know, Laura, I wanted to, to come back to you with a question about whether or not you're getting clients or at least inquiries um, from corporations that operate uh, in the reproductive health care space and their concerns about their ability to maintain client confidentiality, essentially, uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, if, if folks are looking to try to get particular products or services or whatever, is, is that something that's surfaced for you yet? I mean, I think, as we said, it's, it's early days. I think every, pretty much everybody who touches the reproductive rights space, um, whether it's employers who are making these, these offers to pay for their, their employees to travel out of state if they, if they work in a state in which the abortion's banned, or providers or um, folks with online um, reproductive apps that are track, tracking people's uh, cycles and things like that. I think everybody is has taken the last week or so to um, try to get their minds around or their arms around the, the potential implications. So we're definitely beginning to get the, the calls and the questions and think of them ourselves. And I know yesterday um, HHS put out some guidance uh, about um, protecting your privacy, it, health, health privacy online in light of the Dobbs decision. So I think you'll see the government and corporations and private individuals all trying to figure out what the answers are in, in a, at a moment where we don't yet know what the legal, the law is going to say in each of these states, because all the court did was sort of throw it to the states and they can each come up with their own answers and their own law or laws um, addressing it. So we're, a lot of the conversations are being had in a fairly speculative you know, vacuum of, well, if this happens, what will we do? And if that happened, what will we do? But we don't really have good, strong answers or good, strong advice to give people yet. So definitely still in the stay tuned mode uh, at this particular juncture. Yeah, I think we're just spotting potential issues and thinking about, I think as with the HHS guidance, ways you can potentially try to mitigate the, the risks or, or minimize exposure, but it's all, it's all a guessing game right now until these laws get passed and challenged and you know, withstand scrutiny or don't, um, but it's, it's a real period of uncertainty for everybody. Yeah, um, we've talked about the use of anonymity on the part of individuals uh, and potentially even groups to essentially uh, shield themselves, particularly if they are a vulnerable uh, or let's say kind of broadly societally disfavored group. Um, one of the things uh, that I am concerned about, one of the things that I think about uh, basically every day at this stage of the game is the double-edged nature essentially of anonymity and encryption and things of that respect with regards to this very clear rise in, I guess for lack of a better term, extreme domestic political violence and, and groups that seem to be uh, in essence kind of prone to that. Obviously I'm indirectly, but will now directly reference uh, entities like the Proud Boys 
uh, the Oath Keepers, three percenters, all the rest of that. And just so I don't get hate mail, yes, I am a gun owner. Yes, I completely support the Second Amendment. Um, but I, I think this falls into at least what I consider to be an excruciatingly difficult category. And I, I'd like to kind of hear from everyone on this one to the extent that you've got some thoughts. When I, when I kind of look back essentially at, at what happened uh, in the period leading up to January the 6th, um, you know, I was reminded of the, of the fact that the KKK members and, and you had a, a major case that you talked about in there, uh, Jeff, in the book, as well as anarchists and other leftist radicals, uh, both employed masks to conceal their identities in public. You have a great, a great chapter on the entire issue of masks. Um, and at the same time, members of both of those kinds of groups have engaged uh, in violent acts against property or other persons. And an awful lot of the folks who stormed the Capitol uh, on the 6th of January, 2021, including the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers and others, they wore balaclavas or were otherwise masked. Uh, so from a constitutional standpoint, how should society, Congress and the courts navigate competing interests like that? I, I, we may wind up having to get into a, something of a discussion about Brandenburg v. Ohio, maybe in, in, in that context. But I, I will say that, that part of me is, is definitely torn on this issue because I'm a fanatic about uh, the use of encryption um, I, I use Signal for all of my extremely sensitive communications, sometimes some other apps that I won't name. Um, but by the same token, I'm a former intelligence officer um, and I'm a former army officer. And so I, I think about these things essentially with kind of two hats on. And I, I personally am struggling with whether or not um, that kind of technology, you know, in the hands of people that were really competent. I'm not talking about you know, folks who show up and basically film themselves while they're trying to overthrow the government. Um, those are the easy ones to deal with. I think the ones that I worry about are the ones who are really smart, who are really focused, really fanatical, and who really maintain good operational security. And I think there are a lot of folks at the FBI and elsewhere who probably would make the case if they were here that encryption in that context just represents too great a risk to public safety. So, I'd, I'd like to hear where, where folks are at on that. Tommy, let me start with you. Um, sure. Well, it's, I, I agree. It's a very, all of these issues are very difficult and very um, complex. And I think there are two, it's important to keep straight two different things. One is sort of actual plotting, you know, to do some action to take a violent, you know, a violent act, a, a crime um, that's completely behind the scenes where absolutely none of it is happening um in, in you know in public and then there's the other issue which is well what if someone posts something anonymously and you can't tell whether it's a threat or whether it's hyperbole um jeff's book has an example a case study of someone who posted something about michelle bachman some some crude crude insult that if taken literally was a threat to kill her but it wasn't clear whether it was just someone ranting because they didn't like her or whether it's potentially a real threat um and those those are cases where not just a First Amendment right to anonymity is is implicated, but also a First Amendment right to hyperbole. There is a case from the six, the Vietnam era where someone said, you know, if I'm if they ever try to draft me and put a rifle in my hands, the first person I'm pointing it at is LBJ. And the Supreme Court said that's constitutionally protected in context. It was clearly hyperbole in political speech. 
Um, and so that, that for me, that's sort of what I, I've been focusing on and what I find really um, tricky and where I err on the side of, again, allowing even, even crude and uh, hyperbolic speech is you don't want to get to the point where everyone fears that if they say, if they express vitriolic dislike of a politician, the, the Secret Service is going to knock on the door. And 99.9% .9 of the time, they're not plotting anything. Yeah, I, I just to, um, I guess, build on that, it, I really think that that, that sort of 99.9% .9 of the time estimate is a good one to, to keep in mind about what are the use cases that we're seeing for things like encryption technologies and privacy and anonymity protecting technologies. These, it's, it can be in the face of actual threats or, or our fears about the threats, about the, the violent extremist groups with really, really good OPSEC it can be tempting to say these tools are too powerful, no one should have access to them. But when we think about the overwhelming number of use cases of anonymity in society today, it's your banking transactions, it's your sending emails to your family members, it's you know engaging in any kind of commerce or sensitive communications uh, online. In our area, or in our era of the the pandemic and kind of post pandemic life, it's a lot of telehealth. It's your communications with your doctors, your therapists, your clergy, whoever it is that you're having really sensitive conversations with. That's what anonymity is protecting and shielding. And yes, some people do use things like encryption to then also do illegal things, incredibly um, threatening or dangerous or violent things, but taking it away in those circumstances is also going to jeopardize it in this overwhelming amount of, of really positive and important and beneficial uses to people. So I, you know, I, I understand the, the many concerns around the um, law enforcement questions and especially concerns about the kind of rise in political violence that we're seeing in the United States. But I think going after this sort of essential privacy infrastructure for all of our communications, all of our, our digital lives is not the right way to go. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that's been said. And I I would also say that we're really, I, I, I think we're at a tipping point as to, or at least a decision point as to how much do we value uh, these free speech protections, both in the anonymity context and more generally. And I, I think obviously we have challenges that are um, seem insurmountable without more government regulation. And I don't think people necessarily look at what happens next after you regulate against the problem of today. Um, I mean, the encryption example, I, I would say, for example, I mean, to, to effectively prohibit math, um, that's going to prevent the vast majority of the people who have very legitimate reasons for security reasons to uh, protect their data because they don't want to break the law. But the people who are intent on breaking the law will uh, figure out a way to continue to do it. And I, but, but it's hard to raise that argument because you often get pushback saying, well, do you just give up? And, but, but you see that beyond uh, just anonymity and encryption. And I mean, I, I'd say with the entire debate over misinformation, uh, you have few, few misinformation, I'd say hate speech also. Um, 
I routinely am told by people who should know that hate speech, unless it's accompanied by something else, hate speech is constitutionally protected, whether we like it or not. And there's no standalone category for misinformation. There might be defamation. There might be certain commercial speech cases. But um, you see people, you see political leaders saying, well, and my this is actually getting into my next book, which is about misinformation and why we still need to maintain First Amendment protections. And anyone who I, I interact with on Twitter will know my biggest pet peeve is the phrase fire in a crowded theater. Because, and it's not just because it, it has a bad history to it, but also because politicians and leaders and even judges will just use it as sort of this wild card to say, okay, well, we don't really need to uh, worry about restrict the First Amendment. We can regulate speech because you could also say that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You could, and the, I mean, every, every day there's something else saying that. And, and what they don't realize is, okay, there might be the problem of today that you're addressing by regulating it, but you're giving this power to someone else who you might not agree with. And that's kind of how it works with regulating speech. And I, I don't think that people, I, I think people are so consumed with the immediate crisis that they're not looking at what the long-term implications will be when you start eroding those First Amendment rights. I don't think that as a as a country, we're really known for being super long-term thinkers in a lot of respects. I think that tends to work against us. Laura, uh, any any thoughts on this particular question? No, I just was thinking about the difficulty of determining what's misinformation. And that alone, that's sort of a gray area. Uh, you know, I think we, during COVID, there was all this, this push and, and some social media companies said, we're not gonna run any COVID misinformation. But you also had a brand new, um, you know, virus that people didn't really know a whole lot about. It wasn't like there was this established truth. There were, you know, experimental treatments and there were people who believed different things about it. And, and the guidance even from the CDC and, and folks changed pretty substantially over time. And so what, what would hit a, you know, a content moderation filter and social media or something else as to well, we're not going to run, we're not going to publish misinformation about this. It's a pretty much a moving target and asking somebody to get it right all the time, I think is um, spectacularly, you know, unrealistic. And so that when you start to think about what well, we, can, we can regulate that and make exceptions for it, even defining it, uh, you know, there's obviously you know, on the on the extremes on the end of the spectrum, you can say, well, that's pretty clearly absolutely false and it can be proven to be false. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle and where's the line and, and then when you put legal um, implications and legal jeopardy uh, in play for getting it wrong, that's troubling because it yeah. tends to chill speech. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, we have uh, a very interesting question uh, coming in uh, from one of our folks online here. And this person, uh, Anonymous, asks, under current tax laws, nonprofit organizations receive tax benefits uh, and subsidies. We, we can maybe debate that, but in any event, should taxpayers subsidize speech by nonprofit organizations? Can nonprofit organizations that engage in political activity be taxed on their political expenditures? Some of those questions are outside of our scope here, but um, when we talk about um, you know, the nonprofit environment, uh, tax laws, and, and the protection of that kind of data, do we have essentially any kind of 
uh, First Amendment nexus there? Is there any kind of jurisprudence that guides us with respect to for the protection, essentially, of taxpayer-related data uh, and keeping that bona fidely anonymous? I'm thinking back here specifically to what happened during FDR's administration when the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, managed to get him to agree to turn over uh, tax returns of Americans. And for those who may not be fully familiar with or maybe not remember the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, it was a 30-year exercise in looking for communists basically behind every tree. So should we have concerns essentially um, about being able to you know, protect people's data and their ability to operate essentially um, uh, you know, in, a, in a tax exempt status in an organization like a nonprofit? Is there actually a First Amendment nexus there to even be concerned about? I feel like this is a quiz about what's in Jeff's book, because if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it's the um, Bates v. Al Bates v. Arkansas uh, case that was exactly about this. And it was it was another case around the NAACP um, and this whole question of whether for the the tax law of Arkansas that does not actually tax a nonprofit organization like the NAACP, um, if that was uh, kind of enough of a hook for the state to require um, kind of disclosure of the identities of the people behind the, the nonprofit organization. And I bet Jeff can do a lot more complete job of explaining what was going on in that case and kind of all the details. But I think what I what I really took away from it and, and in kind of the whole line of, of cases um, around the NAACP is, is the way that different kinds of laws that don't seem like they're directly about regular speech can be used as a pretext by prosecutors who are looking to control an association like the NAACP or another nonprofit group, um, try to impinge on that First Amendment right to freedom of association um, by, you know, saying that their paperwork is not in order in a number of different ways. Um, and that that kind of, it's, it's, I think, a positive sign when the Supreme Court can look through that kind of pretext and understand that even though on the face of it, this is not a regulation of speech or association directly, the goal is to chill that association um, and to burden the, the speech and the organizing activity that a group of people might do within a nonprofit through the use of these administrative laws. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I'm a spot on on the Bates case. That's and I, that that's uh, the beginning and end of my tax law experience. I did not, I probably did not take it in law school, uh, and uh, <laughs> so, so I, I will not give any commentary on uh, tax. But that that's exactly right. I mean, I and I think that you can see some parallels in some of the campaign finance cases as well, where there's the the court has been more mixed at, on the ability to be anonymous in some cases when striking down certain limits on contributions or expenditures, the court will still allow disclosure to basically say that this is sunlight that basically helps to cleanse any problems with uh, allowing large amounts of expenditures. So, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the principles of anonymity would apply equally. And in fact, the first two First Amendment anonymous speech cases were both with a nonprofit. Tommy, anything to add on that one? 
Oh yeah, I agree with all of that. I'll just add that on the on the topic of sort of data security specifically, there's a, a relevant case from just last year called Americans for Prosperity uh, Foundation versus Bonta from California that was kind of unusual in this uh, in this line because it wasn't that the state the state was collecting data on donors to nonprofits, but it wasn't disclosing it. it the donors' claim was simply that. California had there was too much of a risk that there might be a data breach essentially, and that 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 risk of a hack or an accident or uh, you know a mistaken sort of uh, of having this get into the wrong hands uh, was itself had a chilling effect um, in line with these other cases where the state actually you know uh, was either releasing this data or had had the potentially had the plan to release this data. So the Supreme Court has recognized, um, at least in that case, that the government not only um, has some duty to be careful about what personal data it releases, it even has um, some First Amendment burden or duty uh, to be careful about the data that it, that the government attempts to, to keep to itself um, and to make sure that that doesn't accidentally become public. On the whole issue of uh, you know, kind of First Amendment, and particularly in a in a press context, um, I, I think it's worth visiting Jeff that section of your book. I think it's right around. Uh, uh, I want to say close to chapter chapter six or chapter seven, talking essentially about the whole issue of of journalist shield law, uh, the the concept of of needing essentially a journalist shield law, and I'd like to explore that. Uh, you know, at least for a few minutes, because. You know, right now we have uh, a particular individual from a particular organization who is facing extradition to the United States uh, under the Espionage Act. His name is Julian Assange. Um, I've never met Mr. Assange. Um, I doubt that if I sat down to have a beer with him, I would necessarily find him an entirely agreeable character. But the First Amendment doesn't exist uh, to protect the rights of those who we find uh, to be um uh, those that we'd necessarily want to associate with. It's not, it's not really made for that. So when we talk about an organization like WikiLeaks um, and engaging essentially in what they would call radical transparency, what the United States government clearly considers in, in Assange's case to be espionage, what are the First Amendment implications, you know, if, if this extradition goes forward and these actions against Assange and essentially against WikiLeaks for all intents and purposes, are, are allowed to go forward? And should an organization like WikiLeaks, which operates in a, I think what some folks would definitely describe as a gray zone, maybe maybe even tending more towards a black zone if we actually get into bona fide hacking, what are the implications here? Because on the one hand, you know, we rely essentially on folks uh, in government and even in the corporate sector and elsewhere to put information in the hands of the press when those individuals believe that public health, safety, welfare, uh, et cetera, are literally at stake. We, we rely on, on folks like that, whistleblowers, if you will, uh, for that kind of thing. On the other hand, is it okay for uh, an outfit that basically wants to claim journalistic privilege uh, and journalistic shield, if you will, to engage in hacking uh, and exfiltrating uh, information uh, out of governmental organizations or other organizations. Um, should anonymity apply there? You know, should the, does the First Amendment apply in that kind of context? I'd like to hear from folks on that. Who wants to jump in first? 
and deal with that little hornet's nest that I just created. I mean, I'll, so as a, even though I'm in my personal capacity as a federal employee, I think I'm going to defer comments specifically about the WikiLeaks situation. Um, so I'll say more broadly that I mean, what I write about in the book for journalist shield law comes from my personal experiences as having been a reporter, uh, having been a reporter who ne fortunately never was subpoenaed, but I did enough to get threatened to be subpoenaed <laughs> a few times, which is not fun, especially when the subject whose lawyers are threatening you is a very powerful person in El Paso, Texas, and the threat that they're giving you mentions the Texas Penal Code, uh, which is net three words that you never want to see associated with your name. Um, and that was because we were writing about a very powerful nonprofit, actually, that um, and allegations of real wrongdoing that turned out to be true. Um, but we were relying on some information that they claimed was confidential and they wanted to find out who gave it to us. And it was a confidential source who I had made the promise to that I would, ne I would never reveal their, their, who gave it to me. I said, you know, and per perhaps not wisely, my promise extended through, even if I was subpoenaed and was held in contempt and went to jail. So this had some really pretty significant implications and shaped how I see a lot of First Amendment issues going through that. And fortunately, we ran the story, the day we ran the story, the FBI raided the nonprofit and people were indicted and convicted. Um, but that, that, was, that was scary. And I got a crash course in how few protections we have for journalists, uh, we we have states that have shield laws. Some are better than others. Uh, we do not have a federal shield law. We have um, common law and uh, some First Amendment uh, protection, depending on what circuit you're in. Uh, that protection is has been whittled down even more. Uh, there's only been one Supreme Court case. Uh, that found a privilege did not exist in a grand jury context, but it was kind of a mess. And one of the justices who concurred in the majority, um, I don't think actually knew that he I thought that he was concurring with something differently. Um, but the bottom line is that we need a federal shield law. Uh, there have been a lot of attempts and uh, it had been a bipartisan issue. Uh, then Congressman Mike Pence was actually one of the leading sponsors of the shield law when he was in the House. And um, the but you got you get caught up in issues like how do you define a journalist? What's the national security exception? And those are really important issues. And I was involved in some of the debates about them. But the problem is we get so caught up in them that now we have nothing. And I think it's much more unlikely now than it was a decade ago that we will get something, but I, I, I think it's a it, it's a very urgent issue that we need to have at least some level of certainty in federal courts. Emma? Sorry. Yes, I, I'm happy to chime in a little bit on shield laws. Um, 
And just to kind of add to, to what Jeff said about some of the, the practicalities of why it's important to have a shield law in place where, you know, I think in the it's in the, the Brandsburg um, versus Hayes decision from 1972, where a, this is the, the case that Jeff was referencing, I believe, where the court, um, you know, doesn't find the, the protection of sources for a, a grand jury investigation, but does say that, you know, in general, um, harassment of press undertaken not for purposes of law enforcement, but to disrupt a reporter's relationships with his news sources would have no justification. So kind of like leaving the door open for the idea that, you know, there's ways that law enforcement um, or prosecutors could abuse their their investigations um, that kind of implying that there's probably some First Amendment protection here somewhere. Um, but having shield laws on the books in the states and, and having a federal law on the books as Jeff was saying, it, it gives that certainty to reporters about what they're doing and, and their ability to protect their sources. Um, it gives the sources that certainty that there is that kind of statutory backstop. And it just means that in the general course of doing the job of reporting, you don't have to necessarily think I will maybe be the second time the Supreme Court has ever looked at this question. You know, I will have to be out there on the forefront of breaking new First Amendment ground. Instead, you'll have a statutory protection that can be raised on a motion early in a case and hopefully invoked in a way that if there is such a, a specious or a um, pretextual kind of harassment of press from, a, from an investigation, um, that that issue can kind of get sorted out short of a, a grand First Amendment precedent from the Supreme Court. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that is something I think that it's always helpful to understand about the, and this is something that the scholar Eric Goldman has written about in the context of the First Amendment and Section 230, that we can have First Amendment protections and, and rights under the First Amendment, but in the actual day-to-day -day practical enjoyment of them, it can help to have a statutory backstop as well. Laura, any thoughts on that? Um, I guess I was back on your your initial uh, question about the how with WikiLeaks and how how documents are acquired and whether you have some First Amendment right in radical transparency, which others think of as as espionage or or theft or hacking or you know all sorts of other bad things. I, I do think that the implications of saying you have the right to get this information out there because you think it's important, no matter how you obtained it. Um, and if you knowingly obtained it illegally and through through hacking or getting access to systems, whether they're government systems or the or you know Jeff Bezos's iPhone, I don't think I think that's not a direction that we should be going in. Uh, I think there are probably limits to that, and that the implications of that of sort of turning everyone loose to grab whatever they can grab from wherever and put it out publicly, even more than they already do, um, are not something that we want to encourage as a society. Uh, I'll come down on that side. Okay. Tommy? Um, yeah, I'll just, I agree. This is a very tricky issue. And I've, I've um, I'll just add, Jeff touched on the issue of defining sort of who is a journalist, if you're going to create these shield laws. And I think that, that uh, we've had a case where we supported an amicus brief 
in Washington state, they had a definition of journalists and journalists were able to sort of get more access uh, under the state's FOIA law, but it limited journalists to people who are members of court, who basically took the corporate form. And I think it's really important when we're protecting the freedom of the press that we have an expansive view of what constitutes the press, that we don't forget about citizen journalists, independent journalists. Um, those often at the framing era, journalism was a one person pamphleteer outfit. Um, and so, I, I think if we're going to have these protections, it's much better to define the press by what they're doing, what they're producing. Are they attempting to create something in the public interest or um, produce some piece of journalism to go out into the public and not not look at sort of what some people think might be more objective tests like, are you part of a company that has 100,000 page views or something like that? Because then you're basically limiting your protections to the established press or the corporate press. And I, uh, I would especially um, echo um, those points, Tommy. And, and the other thing that I think is important to kind of, you know, put in play here, and again, being the historian, I have to reach back 50 plus years uh, in order to kind of make a point. But um, three months before Daniel Ellsberg, um, you know, gave all of his material to the New York Times for what would become the Pentagon Papers case, another little something happened in a small town called Media, Pennsylvania. Um, with a, a citizens activist group called the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. Those folks, there were eight of them who lived in the, basically in the, in the Philadelphia area. Um, they decided that, that they were under FBI surveillance. They were virtually certain of it. As it turns out, they were right. Um, and they decided that they were really angry about that and that they really didn't believe the FBI should be looking at them for their First Amendment related activities. So these eight people, none of whom had any real military experience, no law enforcement experience, no intelligence community experience, uh, decided to break into the FBI resident agency in Media, Pennsylvania. Um, their tradecraft was amazing. Uh, the book is called The Burglary. Uh, it's by former Washington Post reporter Betty Metzger. And she was one of the original journalists to actually get some of the documents that they liberated uh, from that FBI office. Uh, and as it turns out, one of those documents went to a fellow by the name of Carl Stern. You may have heard of him. He was a longtime Justice Department correspondent at NBC News. And on that particular document, it had this word, COINTELPRO. And that was the beginning of the unraveling of J. Edgar Hoover's inf infamous counterintelligence program, or COINTELPRO, which, of course, targeted not only Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans. I wanted to retell that little story because my biggest concern, frankly, is government's misuse. And I have direct bitter experience with this from my time at my beloved former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency, of governments misusing deliberately the classification system to conceal waste, fraud, abuse, criminal conduct, et cetera. So I, I tend to come down essentially on the side of WikiLeaks. Um, I'm, I'm not... I'm not really an Assange fan. And I think for me, the tragedy is that people feel like in order to find out what governments are doing, they have to commit criminal acts. So in other words, they have to commit felonies in order to expose felonies. It seems to me that there's something fundamentally wrong, at least with our system in this country. And I'd probably argue uh, in the UK as well, especially with their Official Secrets Act, that makes people feel compelled, at least some people feel compelled that they have to go there. So I, I would certainly like to see a lot of changes in that area. And I definitely agree with the panel that 
some kind of federal journalist shield law that is uh, relatively sweeping in nature, as Tommy alluded to, is, is an absolute necessity. Uh, we continue to be live here. We will be live until uh, probably just before 3 p.m. Continue those questions uh, coming in here. And one of those questions, and I may be opening a can of worms uh, in this respect, but it, um, I think it is worth kind of exploring here since we're on the topic essentially of, of social media and anonymity and First Amendment. Uh, Philip Ellison uh, writes, while this may be a topic for another day, my concern is the protection provided by big tech, provided to big tech by Section 230 permitting deplatforming, et cetera, comments. I, I, I think Jeff is probably going to have a little something to say about that. So I'll, uh, I'll leave the floor to him for now. Yeah, so that's protection provided by the First Amendment. Uh, that's something that not just I, some sort of crazy academic thinks, but that is something that Judge Kevin Newsom of the 11th Circuit, one of the most respected uh, conservative appellate judges believes as well. Um, Section 230 is a backstop for that for those protections and primarily what it says and it was to correct a what I see as very flawed New York State Court decision that basically said that Prodigy in 1995 was liable for everything on its site because it had removed other content so it was liable for what it kept up and uh, Section 230 was intended to fix that. And it went further than that, but uh, that's why I mean, in a lot of these cases involving deplatforming or having certain content removed, the platforms will often raise both Section 230 and the First Amendment. And many times the court will only look at the First Amendment and say, you know, we're not, we, we don't even have to get to 230, or sometimes they'll look at 230 only, or sometimes they'll look at both. But um, I mean, this this comes from a case from the 1970s involving uh, a Florida right of reply statute that was uh, applied to a newspaper basically saying you need to run a letter to the editor from someone who your editorial page had criticized and the Supreme Court said that would violate the newspaper's First Amendment rights. And now obviously um, platforms are different from newspapers, there's no doubt about that, but uh, the entire essence of their product is their moderation. Uh, I, I mean, and I think there's a real misconception thinking that, you know, Facebook is like the phone company. No, no, that's nonsense. Of course it's not. If Facebook was like the phone company, it would be even more unusable than it currently is. I mean, it's <laughs> the, so, so I, so yeah, I mean, we could talk about big tech and section 230, but it really does come down to the First Amendment. And I think that this sort of whole glossing over the First Amendment is what I've been talking about earlier from the other side that says, let's just deem everything misinformation and let the government regulate it. Uh, we have a whole other side saying, let's allow the government to force a private company to distribute the speech of someone else and change its product. And that both of those proposals get me very concerned. Yeah, I, I can I continue to kind of be baffled by claims that um, uh, so-called conservatives are being deplatformed. I mean, there's this thing out there called Truth Social. Um, you know, Mastodon, you know, is is a, a distributed service that's available for this kind of thing. Discord exists, all the rest of that. So I I continue to just um, be baffled by claims that um, 
there aren't, you know, a lot of folks out there with a tremendous amount of money uh, of a conservative orientation who are not in a position essentially to hire good talent and, you know, set up their own little, uh, their own little digital echo chamber, if that's, if that's what they want to do. Um, so I, I, I don't tend to have a, a lot of patience for those particular kinds of arguments. I, I, if there was some kind of, you know, truly forensic published peer reviewed data that would, that would show definitively that there was some kind of bias, uh, but there, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm sure Jeff, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, no such data exists at this point or any studies that have been done certainly don't tend to show that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing there, there. There's nothing. I mean, there's definitely anecdotal evidence. Uh, and then when you combine that with the fact that the tech companies are in California and you and you, you but, but and I mean, there are some cases where the platforms absolutely got it wrong. Uh, yeah. they, but but they're also moderating vast amounts of content. Um, they're far from perfect. I think they've gotten it wrong both on what they've taken down and what they've left up, but that's also my subjective viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, someone else could look at it and reach the opposite conclusion. But the point is that we don't have the government stepping in. Exactly. Telling a private company what conclusion to, to reach. Yeah. Emma, you look like you might want to jump in there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I, I have some thoughts about this, but, you know, Patrick, to your point about there are other platforms out there, that takes me back to the fundamental kind of power of the internet as a technology, as a communications, what we used to call as a platform, the internet itself, um, which is is very different from Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or any given particular service that runs on top of it. And as long as the internet itself is a, a way for people to run their own websites, create their own apps, set up their own services, and not have to get the phone company's permission or your internet access service permission or the FCC's permission to, to run such a system, you can just do it. That's really the sort of the core idea of at least part of how the internet really can enable free expression, right? It doesn't necessarily, if you are taken off of any one particular service, it does not mean that you cannot make yourself heard on the internet at all. And I think there's some like understandable pushback and, and thinking from some people of, if I am taken off of this platform, I'm deprived of the audience that I want to have an access to, right? Like if, if I'm looking for the broadest possible general audience and the general audience websites say I'm not welcome and I can go over to this niche service over here, but that's really only talking to an echo chamber. That's only really talking to the same group of people. I can understand people finding that dissatisfying, right? That is that what they're looking for is access to a broader audience. But I think we are still, very far away from finding any kind of recognition in First Amendment doctrine of like a the fact that you have you as a service provider control access to an audience of people who are voluntarily using your service somehow means that other people have the have the right to speak on your service if you don't want them to. This gets back to the Miami Herald versus Tornillo uh, case that, that Jeff was mentioning earlier, um, that that's really just not the direction the Supreme Court has gone. And we, it's, it's a fool's game to try to predict what the Supreme Court will do, but when the Texas Supreme Court law went up for a sort of initial glance by the Supreme Court on the emergency docket a couple of weeks ago, um, the, the Fifth Circuit had said that the law should go into effect. They were going to um, they, uh, put a stay on the injunction that the lower court had put that, that kept the law from going into effect. The Supreme Court was asked to, to decide should that stay 
hold or should it be vacated? Should the law go into effect or not? And it was a 5-4 decision, but the five justices who said, mm, let's, let's put this law on ice because the likelihood is that the people challenging the law are right, were um, Justices Breyer and Sotomayor and Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett. So uh, Justice Kagan opposed, I think, the whole the whole thing uh, because it was on the shadow docket. Um, that is the most the clearest sign we have so far of where some of the justices might be looking on this. Um, and then it's also very clear where Justice Thomas falls down, falls on on this question. Um, he's written several opinions on somewhat related cases, kind of opining really a, a interest in this idea that there could be an obligation for social media companies to carry um, everyone's speech or to carry speech that they disagree with. So I think this question is going to be up before the Supreme Court in not too long, um, because we do have the sort of Fifth Circuit leaning in one direction, the 11th Circuit strongly leaning in the other direction, saying that the First Amendment law is clear here. Um, so I think we will see this before the Supreme Court soon, but I don't know, I won't make a prediction, but but we have a couple of little glimmers at least. Laura, your time at AOL, um, that was in the, the relatively early early days of all of this, but you've had an opportunity to kind of see how things have evolved. What, what are your thoughts on this? Content moderation is really hard and enforcing terms of service uh, is really hard. But I mean, the way we thought about it you know, we, we certainly had not built a, you know, internet utopia or anything, but we did try to do things like, be, you know, protect kids, have some protections for what kids saw online. It was at that time, it was you know, early on, the model changed, but early on, it was a subscription service. People paid us to be on it. That's very archaic, but it was, there were those days pre-advertising. Um, and, you know, we, thought it was okay. And I think I continue to think it's okay to set up rules and say, this is the kind of, of, these are the rules. These are the kinds of content we permit. And these are the kinds of content or conduct that we don't. And if you have repeated violations, you have to go because otherwise you break it for everyone. Um, I, there are other platforms. There are other places you could speak. And then at that point, you didn't even have to pay for the other ones, right? You could go somewhere for free and use their platform, which you can still do. Um, so I guess I, I fall strongly, you know, in the camp that if you're building a company, or if you have a public company, and you're you're it's investing in it and building it as a as a property, as a destination, as a resource, or as a recreation or, or um, entertainment for people, that you can make it the kind of place you want for with the expression that you want to make it. If it's a privately held entity, it's not the government restricting the speech. You can say, and you know, just like I can say in my house. You know, to my kids, you can't you can't talk that way in this house, or to my guests, it's it's similar. It's not you know it's not identical. But to say okay, we have to let everybody in spewing all sorts of ideas that we find vile and hateful and discriminatory, which will chase everybody else who doesn't like that away, and among other things, destroy the value that we built in this company or destroy shareholder value if you're a, if you're a big you know shareholder rights person. Um, all those things are relevant too. So it's not just the First Amendment that you have to keep in mind, I think. And these decisions, again, having made a bunch of them, they're very hard. And I certainly wasn't making them at the scale or complexity and the number of languages um, and cultural context that the social media platforms are making them now. Yeah, I, I guess I tend to be old fashioned um, in, in maybe more ways than I care to admit. But you know, when I was growing up, 
if I wanted to walk into a McDonald's or some other, you know, publicly traded company and I had no, no shirt, no shoes, there'd be no service. Right. So, you know, I, I believe strongly in uh, a particular company's ability to kind of, you know, set its own standards and terms, as long as they don't, you know, run afoul essentially of any other kind of uh, applicable federal law or constitutional standards. Tommy, you got any thoughts on this? Yeah. I'll, I'll just add that too often in this debate, people, uh, don't don't realize that it's uh, possible to hold two views at once. One that we can have debates over the best policies for social media companies to have, whether it's about how strictly they moderate, how often they take things down, or about anonymity, whether they have a real name requirement or whether they completely allow pure anonymity or somewhere in between, we can have those debates and it's legitimate to have views that say like Facebook's, you know, real name policy is wrong and and harming speech on them. And then at the same time, hold the view that the government shouldn't or can't tell them to do, to have one policy or the other. And too often people, I think, conflate those that if you're, if you're criticizing Facebook for X or Y decision or policy, then obviously this, you must support the government stepping in and imposing a different one. Um, that ignores one, the first amendment problems with that. And two, the benefits of allowing different companies to experiment and then, and potentially different policies are better for different communities. Potentially a real name policy is a better fit for one type of online community and pure anonymity is a better policy for another. Um, And so it's, uh, but sometimes libertarians, I think, go the other way. They say, well, the government shouldn't decide something. And then they stop. And then they say, therefore, let's not even discuss or or think about what the best policies for social media companies to be, should be. And I think that's wrong uh, too. And I think both of Jeff's books have done a great job of separating those and thinking about both of those two questions separately um, because they are separate issues. Those are excellent points. Um, we are beginning to kind of close in uh, on uh, on the three o'clock hour here. So I, I want to begin to kind of uh, bring us to a close, but I, I'd like to do that by essentially finishing off to a certain degree where we started, which was you know, kind of a discussion about technology. One of the major hot button issues uh, that we face right now that has a direct impact uh, on anonymity is this entire uh, problem of facial recognition. And this is, um, I will say that I do not do TSA pre because I have no intention of turning over any more data to TSA than I absolutely have to, but they have been piloting um, facial recognition programs. Uh, I worry that an awful lot of the public will find the alleged convenience of that to be very seductive uh, and that that will basically help to normalize I'd like to hear everybody else's thoughts about, about the perils essentially of, of, uh, of facial recognition technology and, and its implications for our ability to try to at least maintain a level of privacy and anonymity. So, so I, I think, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, um, it, it's a, I think it's one of the biggest immediate threats to anonymity, I think, uh, I don't know how I would rank it, but I think geolocation, the fact that pretty much everyone has a tracking device on them at all times and data brokers basically can freely traffic in that data and no one really cares about regulating them like they do any other company. Um, but the the challenge is how do you, especially when the fa- facial recognition is based on information that people voluntarily put out into the public on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, 
it raises some challenges. I mean, right now there are some defenses to facial recognition in court raising First Amendment defenses. So I think at least the most direct way to deal with this is what jurisdictions like San Francisco and Boston have done, which at the very least say, okay, we're going to pass a law saying that our local police can't use this facial recognition data. And I think that's that's not going to solve all of the concerns. I mean, I'm still really worried about, um, you know, the people who stalkers using this, finding someone on the street, taking their picture, running it through a program, and then figuring out who who the person is. I mean, there's a lot of things that won't address, but I mean, again, I my biggest concern is the government using its power <laughs> to do things, and so that's at least something that I do think that local and state governments can have some control over. Yeah, I, I also definitely see a role for law, both at the state and local level, but also federal um, federal law around this, uh, because facial recognition technology, it is it is a tool for government surveillance, as Patrick and, and Jeff, you've both been discussing, and it, it's potentially a tool for corporate surveillance, right? We hear many different really new and innovative technologies to be rolled out into stores to allow them to track who is going around and what they're shopping for, um, and just the sort of pervasiveness and relatively unobtrusive nature of this potential surveillance that can not just track that a person is going through a store, but figure out who they are and everything else that you can know about them. Um, we're, we're sort of beset from all sides as individuals who might like to, to walk through a city thinking that people generally don't know who I am. Um, and so I think one of the things that CDT would really like to see Congress do is, is finally pass federal privacy legislation, actually have some rules, some baseline rules around what private companies can collect and process and transmit and share with others, um, let alone sell to others uh, as, as just a core element of obviously our privacy, but also our, our sort of First Amendment rights to anonymously move through the world and associate um, and access information that are, are really under threat. Um, there are also laws or proposals like the, the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, um, which would also try to look at this sort of backdoor access to um, to information uh, from by law enforcement through buying it from data brokers, um, you know, finding these different commercial entities that are collecting and amassing huge amounts of information and the the practice of law enforcement of just obtaining that information easily for a fee from from a data broker rather than having to pursue uh, actual legal process to, to get that information. So there are a lot of different backstops to our individual privacy, both from the government, um, but also from kind of corporate surveillance uh, that Congress could make moves on. And it would not only protect our privacy, but it would also bolster our, our First Amendment rights, too. Laura. You know, I find facial recognition technology to be to be terrifying um, in many, many ways. And certainly that it's it's not just it's not just being used by law enforcement. There are those on this panel who say that the use of it by the government is the most terrifying thing. Use of it by private individuals um, is also pretty terrifying, as, as I think Jeff and others alluded to. And after uh, Kashmir Hill wrote the, wrote the article, Kashmir Hill wrote the article on Clearview, then there was the issue where Clearview was, was hacked and there they had said they were only selling their technology to law enforcement, but it turned out that that was not the case. They had a lot of, of corporate clients. So all of that is terrifying to me. And yet, um, you know, we've had some recent, if you have talked about large scale, you know, 
mobs or insurrectionists or others, you know, gathering the use of that to identify a lot of those people, I think it's, it's been pretty, um, I'm not sure where they would be in that investigation without the use of facial recognition, facial recognition technology. So I guess I think the, the fear about it is it all fall, it all depends on where you, where your own view is and how you fall on the way it's being used and who it's, who it's being used by. And, and that if you, you know, if you think law enforcement is the problem, it's terrifying. If you think private individuals are the problem, it's terrifying. So how, how do you put the genie back in the bottle at this point though, when some responsible companies are saying, we're gonna pause development or we're gonna to try to come up and understand what the ethical rules would be. And you have other players just plowing ahead and it's hard to, hard to see how you ever go back and say, okay, this is absolutely impermissible when it's already out there. It's, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like how do you get the guns back, right? Once, once it's out, it's out. Tommy, you get the last word or the next to last word. I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that. So we can, if we can fit in another question. Um, sure. Uh, I think uh, online we're, we're kind of out there I, I, and we are literally five minutes of. So I think what I want to do at this point is just kind of uh, offer each of you an opportunity to kind of, you know, provide a, a minute or so worth of summary comments on, uh, on what we've covered today and uh, anything else you might want to add. And we'll start off with our guest and our author, Jeff. Yeah, so well, first, thank you so much for having me. This has really been a great discussion. Uh, I'm really, really happy to have participated in it. Um, I, so one thing that I sort of conclude the book with is that the First Amendment has limits. Uh, it applies to state action, despite what others might say. Uh, the first, so, so it's not going to address all of the really serious concerns like the, that Laura was talking about. Um, and so we need a strong and we need an effective privacy law. And we apparently are making progress uh, with, with the draft bill that ha that has been circulating. And I think there are many positive aspects. Um, my concern is even in that bill, the way that they define anonymous data, and this is something we've seen for more than 20 years in studies of what data is seen as anonymous, that it's really could be there there's at least the potential that it could be linked together and traced back to someone so i think we really need to um, keep anonymity as a core value when we're having these discussions about having a privacy law laura i knew i would do it at some point during this conversation um sorry about the mute i would agree with with everything jeff said there i think um Anonymity is really um, under siege. I think it's I think it's becoming increasingly uh, difficult to, to understand how to preserve anonymity. And as you say, we walk around with these devices, you can put the pieces together, you can figure out, you know, from the various data pieces that are simply out there, data elements that are out there to be to be reassembled. It's and with the computing power and just sort of the vast volumes of data it's really hard to, to say sort of with a straight face, yep, it's completely anonymous. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll never find out who it was and nobody will ever know it was you. I think those days are, are kind of over, which I think is extraordinarily troubling. Um, but I don't see, and I'm with Jeff on this, I think a federal privacy law is a must, but I also don't see it as being necessarily something that's gonna fix that problem. 
I think it will, if, if and when we get one, I suspect it will improve privacy protections, but certainly not sort of fundamentally move the needle in terms of, of taking us back to an era where people could be reliably anonymous. Emma. Yeah, I, I would agree with my fellow panelists about the need for federal privacy legislation and, you know, and the other kinds of laws that we've talked about that would really be a kind of a backstop to our ability to access information anonymously and speak anonymously. And also one to reflect on our conversation covered a lot of different topics. And I think it's a really great example of how this kind of this thread of anonymity is really woven into so many different discussions about technology and its role in our lives that we're we're having every day and that like so many issues in technology we're always in something of an arms race there are more and different and better technologies and tools that people can use to help obscure their identity online keep themselves uh, anonymous protect their own privacy and there are ever evolving threats or abilities to circumvent those protections um, whether they're legal or technical um, or you know just features of how uh, industry is developing um, and so that for all of us who really value and prize anonymity i think it is going to be a constant struggle and a constant battle to ensure that there is the legal space for our, our right to be anonymous, but that there will have to be a lot of technical work done too to make sure that not only do we have the legal right to it, but we have the practical, actual enjoyment of that right as well. Tommy. Yeah, well, I agree with everything my co-panelists have said. I'll, I'll just add that I think the way to partially get legal reform is to make the case in, uh, to the public of the value of anonymous speech. And I think one of the values of this book is it reminds us of the valid reasons people have um, to speak anonymously and, and the value that uh, can be contributed by that. So to the extent that people have the mistaken view that the only reason you would speak anonymously is if you're, you know, you're, you're nobody, you're no expert, you're just speaking about something you don't understand, or you don't, or you don't have the courage to stand behind what you're saying. Um, having a culture that values anonymous speech for the benefits it has um, is the is the best chance we have for leading to policy change that that helps protect it. The book is The United States of Anonymous by Jeff Kossif. My thanks to Jeff, Laura, Emma, Tommy, and all of you who tuned in to be with us today. And of course, this this particular program will in fact be archived on Cato's website. It'll be available for you to go back and consult at any point. Uh, I thank all of you again. I wish you all a pleasant day, and we will see you once again online at some point down the road. For the Cato Institute, I'm Pat Eddington. Thank you.